This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm great. It felt so good to just say the regular intro and nothing different about this week. We're all here and happy and doing the full intro to the show. <laughs> I know. Well, I was just thinking like we went, we just said, okay, let's record and you went right into it. And I was like, wow, that was so smooth. What a professional you are. This is amazing. <laughs> I stumble over everything. <laughs> Maybe a couple of weeks off from reciting that just made it better when I came back. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now you're, now you're falling apart. Let's, let's get you out of there. <laughs> so Mandy, we got to see each other this week earlier in we the did. week. Yeah, for something exciting that we got to film, and that will be something that we can talk about in the fall, probably. That's really cool. Yes. Um, and at first I was like, job. oh, it's such a long way away. Uh, but then I was like, actually. It's yeah, it's not that far, far at all. <laughs> I really, truly have no concept of time. I was thinking it was March earlier, and I was like, no, that's because I'm confusing it with May, but it's also not May. So <laughs> I'm like, no, we're actually in June. This is this year is like really flying. almost halfway through it, too, which is right? insane. Yeah. Yeah. And Mandy, speaking of the fall, we have something on the books, which we don't have a lot on the books, but we have something on the books for the fall, and that is CrimeCon. And it is coming to Orlando September 22nd through the 24th. We will be there. It's coming up fast. I, first, like I said, I keep thinking of September as being so, so far off, but it's only three months away. It's really not that far away at all. So yeah, if you want to go to CrimeCon, this is a great time to look at tickets and start booking flights to Orlando. Yes. <laughs> you can use our code MOMS for 10% off and we will be there on Podcast Row. Always excited to meet people and see people. And we've only done CrimeCon once because then the world fell apart after our first one. And so I'm very excited to be back there and see everyone. Me too. So Mandy, I know I'm super excited to get into this episode. I know you are as well. This is a story we actually covered on Patreon when it first, the first bit of news came to pass, came to be a few years ago. So we didn't have very much information. And now thanks to Haley and the court system of Florida, there's so much information and we have it all today and I can't so wait to get much. into it. Yes. Yeah. So if you are listening and you think this may sound familiar to you, you probably are on Patreon and you may have heard the story, but as Melissa said, we have so, so oh many more gosh. details um, this time around, and I'm also super excited to kind of retell the story, revisit this one again, and there is an update that's like very recent, so that also yeah. uh, is pretty cool at the end. So, all right, we'll get right into it. 
Singing telegrams and live performers being sent straight to your doorstep as a gift used to be really a bigger thing than I think it is now. And I think at this point, most people would probably be startled or even upset to look out their front door and see a costumed character on their porch if they weren't expecting it to be there. Would you say that's probably accurate? What would you think, Melissa? Here's the thing. You were talking to me about my birthday um, and you were like, if your husband's throwing us a party, make sure I know. And I said, absolutely not. I would never do that. I would rather have a costume person on my porch than a birthday party. So to me, like if you're comparing things, that surprise I would like more than a birthday party. Um, But I don't want anybody on my doorstep. Well, now that I've heard that you're actually open to costumed characters coming over. No. I'll keep that, that in is mind. Not the point here. <laughs> I'll keep it in mind because it actually is still a thing. So, hearing a knock at your door and looking out to see somebody wearing a clown costume and holding balloons sounds like something you would probably expect on Halloween or even during a child's birthday party. But at least to me, I would find it alarming at pretty much any other time. Yeah. So as I often do when researching stories for the podcast, I went off on a little short tangent and found myself looking up companies that actually provide live telegram services. This is how my brain works. I read one small thing, and the next thing I know, I'm I'm looking up this thing for like hours on the internet. I have no reason to be looking this up, but this is how I found out that it's actually still very much a business, Uh, people live telegrams. I found out that you can hire pretty much anything from a hot pink gorilla to Sonic the Hedgehog to go and deliver a fun message or a gift to your loved one on their special day. And I even found a company that actually had a creepy clown for hire. And this little bio about the clown suggested that you could surprise and scare an unsuspecting person by just sending the clown over to their house Mm -mm. without warning, which I think is probably one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. You don't love a person if you do that. That's not that's not love. <laughs> right. That's like a very cruel prank. Yeah. Not not something you would I don't know. I guess it also depends on the person. Some people are really into that kind of stuff. So maybe if you're somebody yeah. who really likes like scary things and horror and stuff like that, maybe you, you would You do. Enjoy would it. you want that? Would you want no, a stranger at not. your door in a clown costume? Yeah, exactly. No, definitely not. Uh, But even if it wasn't for the story that we're going to tell this week, I would still think that this was a bad idea. But what happened on the morning of May 26th, 1990, only solidifies my opinion. It was a beautiful Saturday morning in Wellington, Florida, and Marlene Warren was at her home in the ritzy neighborhood of Aero Club. This was a private aeronautical community complete with its own landing strip and taxiways leading to every home. This reminds me, Melissa, I'm not sure if you're familiar, there's a big, big neighborhood in Port Orange, Florida called the Fly-In, and it's kind of the same thing. It's like a neighborhood where they just have their Yeah, own. I feel like- they can take okay. off their planes and land them and drive them right to their own- airplane hangers. It's crazy, but I know I of neighborhoods like this besides this one. I swear that John Travolta had or he did. Or maybe I make Okay, so he there did. was something yes. like that where he had this in Florida. Yes, and he actually had his house in the fly in there in Port Orange. That was like oh, a big thing. Oh, look at that. Full circle. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So Marlene and her husband Michael were extremely successful business people who had been living in Palm Beach County since 1980, and together they raised Marlene's sons, John and Joe, who were from her first marriage. On May 26, 1990, Marlene and her 21-year-old son, Joe, were home along with several others, including Joe's girlfriend, Jenny, and her toddler son, Joe's best friend, Winston, who also happened to be Jenny's brother, and Winston's girlfriend, Misty. Shortly before 11 a.m., just as they were all finishing a late breakfast, a two-door white Chrysler LeBaron pulled into the driveway and someone dressed as a clown and carrying a flower arrangement and some balloons 
got out of the car and approached the front door. Marlene, who was already standing up, went and opened the door to accept this delivery. When she saw the flower arrangement, she said, oh, how pretty. And at that exact moment, the person dressed as a clown raised a handgun and shot Marlene in the face. Marlene fell to the ground and the clown calmly walked back to the LeBaron and drove off. First responders arrived and found Marlene in critical condition. She was transported to the hospital, but was sadly pronounced brain dead at 11.25 a.m. Marlene was placed on life support while hospital staff worked to find out whether or not she was an organ donor. Marlene was born April 15th, 1950, and was known for being one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Friends said she was a sweet woman who would really do anything for you, and nothing ever really bothered her. When Marlene was just 16 years old, she became a mom. Her first son, John, was born in April of 1966, and two and a half years later, she had her second son, Joe. Tragically, Marlene's oldest son, John, was killed in a car accident in 1988, but her son, Joe, later told 2020 that Marlene was just a great mother and she was just a charismatic person of love. In April of 1972, Marlene married a Florida meat inspector named Michael Warren. He quickly became a father figure to both John and Joe, and they referred to him as dad. Michael worked his way up in his career, and he eventually became a supervisor meat inspector. In 1980, the couple began buying houses in Palm Beach County to flip and rent out. And for the most part, Marlene took care of the landlord side of things with these properties. Within just 10 years, they would own more than a million dollars worth of property, which is about $2.3 million today. Eventually, Michael left the meat inspection business in 1984, and he started a used car lot in West Palm Beach called Bargain Motors. This business ended up growing to include a fleet of rental cars. And at some point, Michael also started owning thoroughbred racehorses. Many people that knew the couple said they were really workaholics who put in very long hours to make these businesses successful, and they were extremely successful. In the mid to late 80s, the Warrens moved into a private neighborhood, the Aero Club that Mandy was talking about before, where residents could, quote, enjoy the luxury of flying right to their doorstep. Most of these homes in the neighborhood, including the Warrens, had private airplane hangars. It's definitely not the type of neighborhood where you'd expect an affluent woman with no enemies to be shot in the face on her own doorstep. On the day of the shooting, Michael was driving down to Miami to look at a racehorse when Joe called to tell him what happened. Joe's friend Winston called 911, and after hearing all the commotion, one of the neighbors, who happened to be a doctor, grabbed another neighbor and they went to the Warren home to see if they could help. The doctor attempted to render aid to Marlene while they waited for the ambulance to arrive. Investigators soon arrived at the scene and interviewed everyone that witnessed the shooting. Joe told the officers that they were all sitting down eating breakfast when they noticed someone standing at the doorstep, and then they immediately noticed that it was actually a clown. Since Marlene was already standing, she went over to the door and answered it, and Joe said that when the door was opened, he could see a bunch of flowers and balloons. Seconds later, they heard a bang, and everybody thought that it was actually a balloon popping, but then Marlene fell to the ground, and they realized that she'd actually been shot. Joe ran outside and saw that the clown was driving an all-white LeBaron with no stickers or pinstripes, and that the car looked like it was brand new, but it did not have a tag on it. Joe said that he could tell there was no one else inside the car. He tried to use Marlene's car to chase after the LeBaron, but he wasn't able to find it. Joe said he was certain that the clown was a man. He said it was a tall person, about six foot one. The clown had orange hair on the sides, but was bald on the top, and he had on a red nose. 
he believed that the clown was actually wearing a mask and not makeup and that this mask had a big orange smile. He said the clown was wearing a gray colored jumpsuit with black army style lace up boots and white gloves. He couldn't see the skin color of the person in the costume, but he says that he could tell that the person had dark brown eyes. Investigators asked if there was anyone who might want to hurt his mom, and Joe said no. He told him that Marlene and his stepdad Michael got along just fine, and he never had any indication that there was an issue in their marriage. Joe's girlfriend Jenny told a similar story, adding that the doorbell didn't work, so the clown knocked on the door. She also said they heard two pops, and she thought that Marlene had fainted until they all rushed over and saw the blood. Jenny said the clown just calmly walked back to the car and never said a word. Jenny also said she thought the clown was a man because she said the person she saw didn't have breasts. That was her quote. She said the person was flat and real tall, around six foot or six foot two. She also said the clown had on white gloves and had orange hair and that the LeBaron the clown was driving looked brand new. Jenny said Marlene was really the greatest person in the world and no one would want to hurt her and she had never heard anything about Marlene getting threats or strange calls or anything. Jenny said immediately after the shooting, Joe went looking for a gun he knew his parents kept in their room, but it wasn't there. So he grabbed a secret gun he kept in his room. Then Joe and Jenny left in Marlene's car and they went searching for this clown, but they didn't find him. Joe's friend Winston told a similar story as well and confirmed that the shooter was at least six feet tall. Winston did say he thought the clown was a male and he had on makeup and not a face mask, but he also recalled orange hair. Winston's girlfriend Misty was also there and she gave a similar statement to everyone else, but she said she couldn't be sure if the shooter was a man or a woman. She described the suspect as being six feet with a medium build. And she thought the clown's makeup was painted, not a mask. She said the clown was wearing reddish colored hair with a multicolored outfit, possibly had some blue dots on it. She said the car was all white. After interviewing everyone, police put out a bolo for the white LeBaron, and later that day, they released a statement regarding the shooting. They mentioned that a clown was involved, which led to numerous tips being called in about clown sightings around town, and they continued to get calls like this for days. Keep in mind, it's not Halloween, it's late spring in Florida, basically the summer, and so hearing multiple clown sightings around town is wild. Also- Bizarre, Yeah. But the point of the whole costume was obviously so this person wouldn't be found out. I highly doubt somebody's wearing a clown costume and they're like, you know what? This is just my personality now. I'm just going to wear this all over town. I think the whole idea was to ditch it. So even looking for, for a sure. clown is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, but I still – I mean, I still think it's crazy then. Like, even if that were the case, if if we're saying that, that there's no way this could have been the same clown, then I'm like, okay, but why are there so many clowns just I, yeah. seen around town in, in May, you know, that – that is it's wild. weird. Thankfully, I have not seen a clown in May Ugh. <laughs> in Florida. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about down here. <laughs> yeah. Forensic specialists processed the Warren home for evidence and found an arrangement of red and white carnations in a wicker basket and two Mylar balloons. One of these balloons was heart-shaped and it said, you're the greatest. And the other balloon had like the most random thing on it. It was an image of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Wild. Those two things wouldn't go together unless you were giving this to Snow White. It doesn't make any sense. No. 
So the police set out to figure out where the flowers and balloons could have been purchased, as well as where someone could have gotten a clown costume for rent or for purchase. Again, like we said, Spirit Halloween isn't open for business yet, and they don't have Amazon Prime back in 1990. So I imagine there's not too many places to even get a clown costume right now. So the first day of the investigation was really a whirlwind, and things actually moved very, very quickly. Detectives first made contact with Michael at 12.15 p.m., which was relatively soon after the shooting. He said that he had no idea why this had happened, and he mentioned that the couple owned many rental properties, and they had evicted tenants numerous times in the past. He told them that Marlene was the one who actually handled all the business pertaining to these rental properties, and he didn't have anything to do with that stuff, so he wouldn't know if there was anything going on. Michael told the investigator that he wanted to go see Marlene in the hospital and told them that he would call them back later to continue the conversation. About an hour later, police got a call from a woman who wanted to remain anonymous, and she told them that they, quote, might want to ask Michael Warren and Sheila Keen a few questions. So officers, of course, know who Michael Warren is. He's the husband of the woman that's just been shot a couple of hours earlier. But who was Sheila Keen? That was a name they really hadn't heard yet. Michael ended up making good on his promise to call the officers back, and at 2 p.m. they spoke to him again. This is about an hour after they've received this tip that police should be looking more closely into him. He talked to the officers about how he had been on the way to Miami with his friends when the shooting occurred. He said he didn't know anyone who owned a white LeBaron and that his rental car business and car lot wouldn't have had a LeBaron on it either because he only dealt in Chevy products and he didn't use any type of Chrysler products in his business. He insisted that the investigators look into all the rental agencies in the area to check and see if they had any white LeBarons in their fleets, which is like such a weird thing to suggest to the police. Like, why would you? I mean, because regular people drive LeBarons too, not just rental cars. So it sounds like a weird direction to send the police in or to try to send the police in right off the bat to me. I would be like, why would why would we specifically look at rental car companies? Well, that, but also he's in that business. So to him, it seems kind of normal, right? Like I wouldn't think yeah, you'd go to true. rental, but if you're in the car company, maybe it would make sense. Yeah. yeah, that's true. By the end of this conversation, though, Michael was really upset and he told the officers that he couldn't provide any further information at that time. They were able to confirm that he was with friends in the car at the time of the murder. One of Michael's employees said that he had left work around 1030 with another person to go to the horse races in Miami, and the friend confirmed that they were in the car when Michael got the call from Joe about the shooting. Later that afternoon at around 3.20 p.m., investigators spoke with Michael again. He told them that he went straight to the hospital after hearing about the shooting. Michael denied any marital issues with Marlene, and he volunteered that there were rumors going around about him having an affair with a 27-year-old woman named Sheila, but he wanted the officers to know that this was absolutely not true. Sheila was actually married to a man named Richard, and they both worked as repossession agents for Michael's company, Bargain Motors. Michael provided a contact number for Sheila, and detectives called and spoke with her husband, who she was actually estranged from at that time, and he agreed to come to the station for an interview the next day. Not long after, Sheila called the investigators herself and said she would also come in for an interview the next day. Multiple people who knew Michael were interviewed, and not shockingly, several of them said that Michael was having an affair with Sheila. Some even said they witnessed the two of them hugging, kissing, and possibly more. So investigators continued to dig into this potential lead. 
Later on that evening, which is still day one of the investigation, police talked with two Publix employees in West Palm Beach who recalled a woman coming in and purchasing the exact flower arrangement and balloons found at the scene less than two hours before the shooting. These employees described the customer who bought them as being a white woman with long brown hair tied in a ponytail. They also said that the woman had masculine mannerisms. And this is interesting to note because when officers looked at a photo of Sheila, they also took notice to what they referred to as her more masculine features. Furthermore, Sheila's apartment was just six tenths of a mile away from the Publix. Unfortunately, though, the store employees said they wouldn't be able to identify the woman. The store manager found the receipt for the purchase of the flowers and the balloons, and it was time-stamped at 9.22 a.m., and the items were paid with a $100 bill. Interestingly enough, it was learned that one of the balloons, which was that heart-shaped one that said, you're the greatest, was only sold at this specific Publix location. Just before midnight on the 26th, investigators got a call from an employee at a Payless Rent-A-Car. They said that a white Chrysler LeBaron had actually been stolen from them on April 15th of that year, and that Bargain Motors was involved in that theft. The employees suggested that the investigators look further into it. So the next day, Sheila and her husband Richard were interviewed separately. Richard said that he and Michael had actually been friends for years, but in the recent months, he began to suspect that Michael and Sheila were having an affair. He told the officers that Sheila actually had left him already back in January of that year, which was five months earlier. He said that while he wasn't holding any grudges against Michael, he still just really didn't want to associate with him. And so they hadn't really talked much in the last month or so. Totally understandable. Richard said that having affairs was really nothing that was even a new thing for Michael, even before his affair with Sheila. According to Richard, Michael had, quote, all kinds of girlfriends, but he also said that he couldn't remember Michael having any real problems at home with Marlene. Richard told officers that he didn't personally own any firearms because he was a convicted felon, and that was for charges including weapons possession and drug trafficking, but he said that Sheila did have guns. In fact, she had actually called him about a month earlier saying that her 38 caliber revolver was missing, and she was asking Richard if he knew where it was, and he didn't. In Sheila's interview, she denied having an affair with Michael at all, and she said that she knew there were rumors going around that they were having an affair, but those rumors were not true. Sheila said she first heard about the murder when she called Bargain Motors that morning about some repossession work, and she said that during the time of the murder, she was actually out looking for cars to repossess in the Lake Worth, Boynton Beach, and Riviera Beach areas, and that was at the time the shooting took place. She said that she was alone that morning and didn't stop anywhere or talk to anyone, though, who would be able to confirm her whereabouts. When asked if she owned a clown suit, Sheila said no. She also said that she did not own a white LeBaron and had not even been in one recently. And she even denied stopping at Publix on May 26th. A search of the dumpsters outside of Sheila's residence turned up nothing incriminating. But there was still plenty more to be learned about Sheila. And we're going to get into it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Imagine if your shopping cart had its own brain, like a really smart, non-tired mom brain. Meet Rakuten, the genius that hooks up your wallet with savings every time you shop. 
With Rakuten, you can dive into a treasure trove of over 3,500 stores. So whether you're craving the latest fashions, glamming up with beauty products, gadget hunting, or even grabbing a bite to eat, Rakuten's got your back and cash back. With brands like Samsung, Wine.com, and Petco, you'll always find a way to earn money back. If that's not enough, Rakuten is free. Literally zero membership fees. Plus, it's as easy as pie to sign up for. And you get to decide where you want your cash back. Rakuten can send it to your PayPal, or they can mail you a paper check. I signed up for Rakuten months ago when I heard about it on another podcast. I've already gotten cash back on a trip to Sephora, which is always so expensive, but thanks to Rakuten, it feels less like a splurge and more like an investment opportunity. Thanks to the cash I got back to my PayPal account, and you can do the same. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. Go to Rakuten.com now or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Step into the glitzy world of June's journey and prepare for an adventure that's out of this world. Get ready to ditch the dull and dive into a world where mystery meets glamour and where June Parker's drama-filled escapades will have you hooked faster than you can say, flapper dress. Whether you're itching for a whodunit fix or just craving an escape from the mundane, June's journey is your ticket to excitement. Follow June as she unravels family secrets and untangles the web of mystery surrounding her sister's death. It's like joining a high society soiree, but with way more intrigue and way fewer dull conversations about the weather. Just kidding. You know we love a weather chat. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and immerse yourself in a world where every corner holds a new clue and every twist keeps you guessing. But hold on to your pearls because June's journey isn't just another run-of-the-mill mobile game. I'm already knee-deep in the fifth chapter of June's journey, and each chapter is more fun than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the toe-tapping music, everything about June's journey screams class. So what are you waiting for? Step into June's world and let the adventure begin. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee deep in the fifth chapter and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer, step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we're learning about police's investigation into Sheila, their conversation with her, kind of figuring out where she was on the day that Marlene was murdered. And investigators learned more about Sheila's background, and much of it was very unappealing. When Sheila was in her late teens, she began dating Richard Keene, who was 20 years older than her. So that's quite a big gross age difference yes. as a teen. 
Yes. Even more gross is that Richard was actually dating Sheila's cousin at the time they met. And so Sheila essentially stole Richard away, which really Richard just left and now went to Sheila. And we can't really imagine why, because Richard was not really a catch. And I don't even feel bad about saying that because the Palm Beach Post reported that he was actually a former director of the United Clan of America. So Mm. I stand by all guy for sure. So Sheila and Richard shared an interest for the finer things in life, and they liked to live this rich lifestyle. Sheila drove around in a big Lincoln Continental from the time she got her license, and Sheila's family did not approve of her relationship with Richard, which no shock there, and they felt that he was a very bad influence on her, but she really just didn't care. Not long into their relationship, Richard was sent off to prison for 10 years for trafficking marijuana and getting into a shootout with authorities on a Georgia airstrip. Sheila stood by her man, and they continued their relationship once Richard was released on parole in 1983. I feel like the fact that it was a shootout on an airstrip to me makes it seem so much more like what happened. You know, like it's not like they came How? to his house for a raid or something and like they started shooting. But like, why were you on an airstrip? Why were the police chasing you on an airstrip? And when, why were there guns involved? Like that just makes me want to know more about what happened in that It sounds particular like the case. sequel to Cocaine Bear that we watched, yeah. <laughs> but it's marijuana and it's Georgia. So. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. The couple ended up having a son, and they got married in 1987, and that's when they started repossessing cars for Michael Warren. At some point, Sheila and Michael, and Michael is just 10 years older than Sheila, they began having an affair in January of 1990. Sheila and Richard ended up splitting up, and Sheila moved into an apartment that some people said Michael was paying for. And Sheila and Richard's son began to live with Richard. As word about Marlene's shooting spread to other local agencies investigators started getting more credible tips and leads. On May 27th, a sergeant from the West Palm Beach Police Department called to report that Michael's business, Bargain Motors, had been under surveillance two years earlier for a theft that was happening in West Palm Beach. The sergeant also said that Michael was suspected of being involved in hiring sex workers, drugs, loan sharking, and dealing with stolen property, and that the FBI might also be in on the investigation. Wow. Imagine, like, looking into this guy and finding out that like he's already being looked into (laughs) right what is it lions and tigers and bears oh my like that's what it is yeah very much so so when the detectives who were investigating marlene's attack looked into all of this they quickly learned that michael was in fact a pretty shady character and he had been for a very long time very soon after opening bargain motors he was caught and charged with changing the odometer on a car He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 19 months of probation, and the business was then transferred into Marlene's name. But, of course, Michael still continued to run this business. A few years later, a customer sued Michael after he actually had her car. This is the craziest thing ever. So he had this woman's car repossessed, but then he lied to her and convinced her that her vehicle wasn't repossessed but actually had been stolen. But really, he was the one who stole it, technically. And so he then tried to resell the car and collect on the insurance. So he was, like, running this, like, crazy multifaceted scam with these cars so much work oh my gosh (laughs) yeah it's pretty wild so michael denied this allegation though and he still hadn't gone to trial for this by the time that he um was being looked into for in marlene's death but he later was found guilty of other similar crimes so it seems like a pretty believable thing in context when you consider everything else that he was involved in it seems like he probably did do that So the investigators continued to get tips from people that were connected to Michael. 
In one of these calls, a man named Bobby told the investigators that Michael hired his friend Daria for sex work on multiple occasions, and that less than a week before the shooting, Daria had been picked up by a client that was driving a white LeBaron. Bobby said that Daria was not the same after this particular client, and she didn't act herself for several days, but she didn't really mention anything specifically weird that had happened. Bobby told officers they should try and speak with Daria, but despite trying to locate her multiple times, they were never able to find her to talk to her. On May 27th and 28th, authorities went to a store called the Spotlight Costume Shop in West Palm Beach, and they interviewed two different employees there over these two different days. They interviewed each of them on the separate days. So both of the employees told them that a thin white woman with long brown hair had come into the shop two days before the murder. They said that the woman showed up after the store was already closed, and they had tried to tell her that she could just come back the next day, but she wouldn't take no for an answer, and she really said she only needed to be in there for one minute, and she just needed to have a costume that night. Again, that would be immediately a red flag for me. I'd be like, really? Right. <laughs> yeah. And also, if you're forcing people to stay open, you don't think they're going to remember you? Like, For sure. They're, they're absolutely going to remember absolutely. you. Come during normal business hours. Right. One of the employees commented that the woman they saw, quote, walked and looked like a man. Both employees said that the woman bought a clown costume that included a hot pink and yellow outfit and an orange wig. They said this woman also bought a red nose and asked for enough white paint to completely cover a person's face. They said that she did not buy any clown shoes to go with her outfit. The employees looked at a six-photo lineup, and they both pointed to Sheila, saying that she looked the most like the customer they saw, although one of them was kind of wavering in that, and she did point to a different woman she thought looked like the customer as well. Based on the receipts from the store, the investigators were able to purchase the same identical orange wig as the one that was purchased by this mystery customer, and they just kind of held on to that. They didn't know how it could maybe be useful later. You know what I love about this story? Even though... I read it and looked into it and all of that and know it. Even hearing you talk about it, I like can't wait to hear what happens next because it's just one of those riveting <laughs> stories, really is, yeah. right? So on May 28th, further evidence was brought to light that Michael and Sheila were actively having an affair. An employee at an Arby's right next to Michael's car lot called and said that she saw Michael at the Arby's with a woman who wasn't Marlene. She said Michael had come into the restaurant many times over the years, sometimes with his employees, sometimes with different women. In this particular instance, he was walking arm in arm with a woman that he appeared to be in an intimate relationship with, but it wasn't his wife. That same day, detectives interviewed neighbors of Sheila's. According to one couple, they saw Michael and Sheila numerous times in the last three to four months. They saw Michael approximately two to three times a week at all hours of the day coming and going from Sheila's. And later on that night, at 9.30 p.m., Marlene was officially pronounced dead. Her body was taken to the medical examiner's office, where the bullet that killed her was recovered. Ballistics testing showed that the bullet was either a 38 or a 357 caliber projectile that was fired from a weapon other than a Smith & Wesson or a Colt. A preliminary review indicated that the bullet could have come from one of several firearms, including, but not limited to, Charter Arms, RG Industries, and Ruger. After this ballistics testing came back, investigators reached back out to Richard Keene to ask more about this 38 caliber revolver that Sheila had supposedly lost. He said he couldn't remember what type of gun Sheila owned, but he knew it wasn't a Smith & Wesson or a Colt. He couldn't recall where she had purchased this gun from either. And as far as we can tell, Sheila's gun was never located. 
Over the course of May 29th to 31st, detectives went to Bargain Motors to speak with Michael's employees there. Michael was actually there as well, so the investigators were able to talk to him too. And he once again said that he had no clue who would want to hurt his wife. He admitted that he was involved in a lawsuit in the Chicago area concerning a dispute over a race that his horse won, and that the lawsuit involved approximately $150,000 or about $350,000 in today's money, and he said that this was being handled by his attorney. He said that he had had the chance to talk a little bit more about the LeBaron with his son, Joe, and he was even able to show Joe some photos of different LeBarons to kind of help nail down what model this one may have been. And he said, this revealed to him, that the LeBaron driven by the clown may have been an older model, but he said that if it was an older model car, then detectives should then start looking at the car dealerships and because many repossessions had taken place of LeBarons. Again, he's very much like telling the police to go this way. Yeah, this is a lot of, yeah, like don't look over here, look over here. For sure. So investigators said that they were checking into every possible aspect involving the car and Michael once again insisted that they focus their attention on the car dealerships and any repossessions. And the officers, of course, remember back to their first conversation with Michael where he's kind of already said this. He specifically told them that he didn't deal with any Chrysler products and that they should look into the rental car companies. Investigators also learned more about the stolen LeBaron from the Payless car rental about 45 days before the murder. So numerous employees from the Payless car rental told the detectives that approximately 45 days before Marlene's murder, a married couple who they knew as Mr. and Mrs. Anderson had called Bargain Motors, believing it to be Payless car rental. So what they were trying to do was return a white Chrysler LeBaron that they had rented from Payless. So They're dialing the wrong number. They get in touch with Michael, who does not work for Payless Car Rental. He works for Bargain Motors. And Michael tells them to go ahead and park the car at Payless and just leave the keys in the visor and the car would be picked up. One of the employees of Bargain Motors told the investigators that shortly after this phone call from the Andersons, he actually drove Michael and Sheila down to the Payless Car Rentals and watched them get into the white LeBaron and drive away. (laughs) I don't get that when there's two of them. Why wouldn't one of them drive? Like, you'd think you'd want as few people in on this as possible. Why are you bringing witnesses? I have no idea. It's really just mind-blowing. So this employee said that Michael told him not to say anything to anyone about the LeBaron. First thing I'm going to do is tell everyone. Exactly. So the detectives followed up with the Andersons, and they explained what had happened in their own words and said that when they tried to return the LeBaron to Payless, where they had rented it from, the business was already closed. So they went home and looked through a phone book to find a number to call. They ended up calling Bargain Motors, who is not connected with Payless, but the Andersons did not realize that. And whoever they talked to at Bargain Motors, possibly Michael, told them that they were associated with Payless and they could just drop the car off in front and leave the keys above the visor. So that's what this couple did. When they got back home, then they called back the same number, which was for Bargain Motors, and told them that they had dropped the car off. And the employee that was speaking to them now was saying nobody there had ever told them to um, drop off the car. And so the Andersons then rushed back over to pay less, but the car was gone. And it, it all of this happened incredibly fast. It had only been about 15 minutes since they first dropped it off. So a stolen car report was made. Whoa. I mean, that 15 minutes, there was – 
Oh my gosh, that's just wild. That is absolutely wild to me. And can you imagine calling back and like you speak to someone different and they're like, no one would have ever told you to do that. (laughs) I would think I was absolutely losing my mind. There's just no way around it. That's crazy. So all of this sounded very sketchy and very intriguing to the investigators because it tied Michael and Sheila to a vehicle that matched the description of the car that the clown was driving. On May 30th, witnesses at a Winn-Dixie in Palm Beach reported that a white LeBaron had been parked there since at least 8.30 a.m. on the 27th, so at that time it was about three days. The car did have a license plate on it, but it was found that the LeBaron was actually registered under a different tag number, a tag that happened to belong to Payless Car Rental. The LeBaron was ultimately determined to be the one that Sheila and Michael stole from Payless 45 days before the murder. It was searched for physical evidence, and according to the detective's notes from 1990, they found several small orangish-reddish hair fibers near the passenger seat, as well as long brown hair fibers in multiple parts of the car. Burgundy fibers were found on the carpet. All of these fibers and hair were collected and taken into evidence. In the trunk of the car, there was a brown paper bag from Publix. No keys were found in the car, but there were no signs of hot wiring, so the investigators believe that whoever was driving this car had the keys, but those keys have never been located. Unfortunately, DNA analysis wasn't very advanced at the time, so the hairs could not be used to identify anyone, but they were stored for future testing. Mandy, you've brought that up before, like the wherewithal to know like in the future we might be able to figure this out still blows my mind. Yeah, and as we can see, like that it is... We've seen like to right. this day, it's relevant, right? Like they are, they are right a lot of the times. Like it's so smart to think to save that stuff. I, we always say, I say I'm not smart enough to do those the job that they do. Like I'm really just not. <laughs> well, it's a good thing they're doing it and not us. So by May 30th, investigators had a lot more questions for Sheila. They sent a couple of officers over to her home to sit outside and to wait for her. Sheila and her mom arrived a short time later and both of them were asked to go to the station and they agreed. Sheila's mother told the detectives that on the day of the shooting, which was May 26th, Sheila arrived at her home, the mom's home, at around 12.30 p.m. Sheila's mother lives in Indian Town, which is about 40 miles away from West Palm Beach. She said she thought Sheila had on a purple shirt and faded jeans and that she arrived in a small gray car. So we're not really sure what Sheila and her mom did after she got there, but her mom told officers that she had gone to pick up Sheila's son at Richard's house, and the little boy said something that now seemed a little bit weird. He said, clowns are bad. Sheila's mom confirmed that Sheila did have a gun, but that she had told her mom it was missing about three to four weeks before. She had also told that to her ex-husband, and now she has said to her mom as well about a month before the shooting that she has a gun that is missing. And the mom said she did not believe that Sheila had ever found the gun. When it was Sheila's turn to answer questions, she immediately asked for a lawyer. The interview ended, and Sheila was informed that officers would be getting a warrant to search her home. And she cooperated and even provided them with a key and told the officers that she and her mom would meet them at her house. Multiple items were collected from Sheila's home, including two pairs of black lace-up boots consistent with the ones Joe said he saw the clown wearing. Various hair fibers were recovered from the bottom of the shoes, specifically orangish-yellow acrylic fibers and burgundy fibers. None of this, however, was enough for an arrest warrant. Two days later, on June 1st, Marlene's funeral was held and Sheila was there. 
Later that day, Marlene's stepsister, Jamie, told investigators that she had spoken to Marlene about six to eight weeks before she was killed, and Marlene had said to her, quote, if anything happens to me, get Joe out. So remember, Joe is her son from her first marriage. Jamie knew that Marlene and Michael had fights, but Marlene never really elaborated on the details of her marital problems. But she did tell another sister that she actually was planning to divorce Michael. On June 4th, detectives spoke to the girlfriend of an employee at Bargain Motors. She said that she had heard that Michael said he would never divorce Marlene because she would get half of everything. She said that she had never heard Michael say anything bad about Marlene, nor had she really heard any threats. And she also said that in the weeks before the murder, she heard that Michael was trying to really back away from his relationship with Sheila, the affair. Sheila and Michael evidently stopped having these long lunches together, and Michael seemed to kind of be putting her off, and Sheila did not appear to like it. In the coming days, investigators spoke with many more people who knew the Warrens. A friend of the couple, a woman who had known them for about 10 years, told the officers that she had just met up with Marlene three days before the shooting and that Marlene seemed depressed. She said that Michael wasn't coming home and he'd been hanging out with Sheila around the car lot and she suspected that the two were having an affair. This woman's husband also told investigators that he was friends with Michael and spoke to him a couple of times a week and that Michael told him about Sheila and said she was interested in him, but he didn't have any further details, which is just like a man to not ask any follow-up questions when there's like a piece of information like this, right? So another couple that was friends with the Warrens told officers that Michael treated Marlene like dirt and that they'd been having issues for a while. These friends said that Michael refused to give Marlene any money and that on at least one occasion in the last year, Marlene had shown up at their house upset and crying. The wife said that she heard about Michael's affair with Sheila, but she didn't have any firsthand knowledge. The husband said that he saw Sheila at the car lot several times and Sheila tagged along with them to a horse race one time. Michael, at this horse race, hugged and caressed Sheila during this trip, which is... How awkward for your friends that, like, know you and your wife. I know. Like, that's that's such a weird position to put them in, but also so brazen to not just out in the open. Yeah. So on June 6th, a man called to say that he had actually seen Sheila in his store two to three years earlier wearing a clown suit. And this sounds kind of wild, but detectives actually found a photo of Sheila wearing a clown costume for Halloween. It didn't look like the one that the killer had been wearing, but it was still eerie and possibly important to the case. I say yes and no on that. I know. I'm like, is it eerie? Because people dress up like a clown, like regular people. Okay. In the 80s, how many costumes did we have? We had Very true. Yes. (laughs) I think I was a clown like 10 times in my childhood. (laughs) Exactly. We just didn't have a lot of choices. So probably everyone in this case was in a clown costume at one point. Yeah. So at one point, investigators spoke with Joe's girlfriend, Jenny, again, to get another statement from her. She was one of the four witnesses to the shooting. She was asked whether or not she and Joe had ever talked about the investigation. And she told him that she really didn't. She said she didn't like to talk about it with Joe because it made him just get incredibly upset and start crying immediately. She talked about how much Joe really just loved his mom, and she did too. Jenny said that Joe and Marlene were very, very close as mother and son, and they never really fought. They would argue and bicker, but they never fought. Jenny said that Joe never said anything about who he thought could have killed his mom, although Joe later did tell WPTV that he suspected Sheila was responsible. 
Jenny said that on the night before the murder, she and her toddler son went over to the Warrens to be with Joe and the family. Other people were there as well, including her brother Winston, who, as we said, was friends with Joe, and Winston's girlfriend, Misty. Marlene was also there, but Michael wasn't. He didn't get home that night until really, really late after work. Jenny said that Marlene didn't seem upset or she didn't say anything out of the ordinary and she was in her usual cheerful mood. But when Michael got home, all he did was make a sandwich, grab a drink, and went straight to bed. And this is all while Marlene and the kids, you know, everyone else is sitting on the couch. Jenny kind of described it as Michael walking in the door from work very, very late and saying, hey, honey, and then just retiring for the night, not even bothering to hang out with anybody that was there. Jenny, Winston, and everyone else ended up staying the night that night at the Warren home. And in the morning, Jenny said she heard Michael opening all the doors in the house to the bedrooms and checking to see if there were people inside. He would just open the door and look in but not wasn't saying anything. And then a short time after that, he left to head to Miami for the horse races. And everybody else in the house kind of started to wake up and Jenny then started to make breakfast for everyone. Jenny said one thing that stood out to her about the shooting was that the clown walked very slowly to the car and got inside of it. And then she said that she could see that the clown was just sitting in the car staring at them. And she said she distinctly remembered the killer's eyes being so, so horrible and that the vehicle drove away very slowly as well. In this interview, Jenny stated that the clown had light blue eyes. So if you'll recall, earlier on, Joe told the officers that he remembered dark brown eyes. Further, when Jenny was shown a photo of the LeBaron that was found abandoned in the Winn-Dixie parking lot, she said she was 100% sure, 100% sure (sighs) that this was not the same car the clown was driving in. She said the one that she saw the clown driving in had a pinstripe on the side. So interestingly, Jenny's original interview from the day of the shooting also included this little detail that she thought she saw a pinstripe on the car, but she was the only one who said that they saw anything on the car other than white. Everybody else said it was just plain, plain white, but Jenny was at least consistent with this detail. She said it in the beginning, and then she told the police again. She remembers there being a pinstripe on the car. She said the car they found abandoned 100% is not the LeBaron. I feel like people should be really careful when you make absolute statements like that in an investigation yeah. because I kind of was – we were talking about this a little bit or I think I may have just wrote it in the notes of the case. But the topic of remembering details of something traumatic that happens right. in front of you or around you or just anything that like gets your adrenaline pumping and then even immediately after trying to remember very specific details um, to relay – we're not very good at it. Like humans aren't very good at it. They've done many (laughs) studies about this and it's not an accurate way. You know, you can't ever say I'm a hundred percent sure that this is what I saw because there's, there's no way you're a hundred percent sure. I feel like, you know, you can't say that, but then it does make, whenever you do say that it kind of puts that like emphasis on that detail. So then it's like, it makes the officers think like, well, maybe it's not, you know, maybe this isn't connected when I feel like if, she were to have said, like, I don't know, it could be, or I can't say if it is or isn't. I don't know. I feel like you got to be really careful making, like, absolute statements. Like, it definitely wasn't that. For sure. And this is a perfect example, this case is, of four people watching the same thing take place, and everyone has some details that are a little bit different. Nobody has two matching details from the eye color to the uh, clown's, was the clown wearing makeup or was it a mask? It's all different. And people are pretty confident in what they saw. 
So it is, to me, this is like a perfect example of of what you're talking about right. the story is. So investigators fully believed that Michael and Sheila were involved in Marlene's murder, but they still didn't have enough evidence to prove it. Throughout this whole time, they had still been simultaneously investigating the allegation that Michael stole the LeBaron from Payless Car Rental. And during that investigation, they had uncovered a whole lot more of these illegal things that Michael had been up to. Things like turning back odometers or stealing cars and claiming the insurance money on them and many, many more things. So Michael's arrested in October of 1990, which is a few months after the murder, on 13 counts of racketeering, grand theft, conspiracy to commit grand theft, operating a chop shop, and filing a false and fraudulent insurance claim. A prosecutor said that these charges were really just the tip of the iceberg of all the criminal activity that Michael and his employees had a hand in. He was eventually charged with a total of 66 counts. So a year after Marlene's murder, police announced to the media that they knew who was involved and they named both Michael Warren and Sheila Keene. Their theory was that Michael wanted Marlene dead and Sheila agreed to do it, that she was the shooter. Several possible motives were discussed, including the affair, the hefty life insurance policy on Marlene, and that Michael would gain full ownership of the couple's properties. Detectives said that while they may have enough for an arrest, they felt that they may not have enough for successful prosecution, but they were certain that Sheila and Michael were involved. An arrest was never made at that time or anytime soon after. They continued to dig deeper into the case, but they couldn't find enough hard evidence to bring charges. In August of 1992, Michael was found guilty on 43 of those 66 counts that he was accused of involving his business, and his lawyer said the only reason Michael was even taken to trial over these charges was because he was suspected in Marlene's death. At the sentencing, the judge accused the investigators of quote-unquote coercion of witnesses and agreed that Michael would have never gone to trial if his wife hadn't been killed. He called the case against Michael, quote, total and complete selective prosecution, end quote. Prosecutors obviously disagree with this assessment of the situation. So the guidelines of the state suggested a 9 to 22 year prison sentence, but the judge decided to sentence Michael to 22 years of probation, which is kind of wild that it's a 9 to 22 year prison sentence. And he's like, just 22 months of probation. You're good. Not months. I actually messaged Haley to find yeah. out because I literally thought it was a typo when I saw that he was sentenced to 22 years of probation. I was like, there is no way that is right. And so like, I text Haley and I was like, I just want to make sure like it wasn't supposed to be months, like an accident. And I was like, because I've never heard of anyone getting sentenced to like 20 plus right. years of probation. And she said, no, it was 22 years. So that's wild to me. I've never heard of somebody being put on probation for that long. No. That seems like that is bizarre. And also like as a person getting sentenced to that, I can't imagine being on probation for 22 years. I mean, obviously it's it's not supposed to be fun. It's a punishment, but like. Right. That's but a long time. Not, yeah, but not having any actual jail time and getting that much probation that is that's pretty wild so it was later ruled in the court of appeals that michael should have gotten a harsher sentence not just probation and so he was then sentenced to nine years in prison but he got out after serving four of those years michael and sheila then moved to tennessee where they opened a restaurant called the purple cow which feels so random after all of the things that he's been involved in to be like now it's a restaurant So they later moved to Virginia and they got married in 2002. And it seemed like at this point, Marlene's case has pretty much gotten cold. 
But years later, in 2013, a new lead detective was assigned to Marlene's case and the ball started rolling again. All the physical evidence that they gathered back in 1990 was sent to the lab to be retested. A technician went through all of it and found an orange-yellow acrylic hair on the ribbon from the balloons at the crime scene, and they were able to compare the acrylic hair to the ones from the wig that investigators had purchased at that spotlight costume store back when the murder first happened, that one we said they didn't know when or how it could have been useful. All they knew was that it was an identical to the one that this mystery person had purchased at the store, so maybe they'd be able to match it down the line sometime. So these fibers actually were an identical match in composition. Further analysis of the burgundy-colored hairs that were found originally on the bottom of Sheila's boots and in the abandoned LeBaron were also determined to be an identical match. The human hair that was found in the LeBaron was analyzed, and it was concluded that it matched a sample of hair collected from Sheila's head. DNA analysis concluded that Sheila could not be excluded as a source for the hair and further analysis on the skin portion of the hair on the root concluded that Sheila was the source of the skin on the hair that was locate the one that was found located in the abandoned LeBaron that they found. So this all gets a little bit confusing because they're collecting evidence from so many different places. I feel um, it kind of gets a little mixed up. So this is the one from the abandoned. And by the way, they also haven't linked any of these items to any individual. So like they're still kind of like everything is kind of everywhere. So based on all these things that they've now found, the investigators felt like they were really sure Sheila was the killer clown. They took their evidence to the state, and the state agreed to take the case before a grand jury. Sheila was officially indicted on one count of first-degree murder with a firearm on August 31st, 2017. She was arrested on September 26th in Virginia. Prosecutors said they'd be seeking the death penalty, but they later decided not to, which meant that Sheila would still be facing life in prison. After Sheila was arrested, Marlene's mom, who at this time was 87 years old, told the Florida Sun Sentinel, quote, I didn't think that it would ever happen. There's always hope, but I'd prefer to have her instead. She was a special young lady. It feels good that they found the killer, but it's taking me back to the memory of it, and it's kind of hard. I feel like crying now, but I'm glad it's over. That just breaks my heart for her poor mom. But that, however, is not where our story ends. And we are going to wrap up the conclusion of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Want to get away? Yeah, I do too. But since that's not really on the agenda anytime soon, I'll have to settle for a different kind of journey. And you can too, all with a fun mobile game. June's Journey allows you to enter the realm of June Parker, where an extraordinary adventure awaits. Best of all, no plane tickets needed. Say goodbye to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a world where intrigue meets elegance, courtesy of the drama-filled exploits of June Parker. Whether you're in need of a riveting mystery or simply yearning to escape the monotony of everyday life, June's Journey is your gateway to excitement. Follow June as she unravels hidden family secrets and navigates the intricate web surrounding her sister's demise. It's sort of like an upscale soiree minus the dull weather discussions, although we secretly enjoy those too. But hold on to your pearls as June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm deep in the fifth chapter with each section proving more enjoyable than the last. From the awe-inspiring scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect of June's Journey exudes sophistication and refinement. Don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure commence. 
Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. How's that saying go? Failing to plan is planning to fail. And as much as I'd like to pretend I could just wing it through life, I know that I can't. But no matter how much planning I do, if I can't get a good night's sleep to execute it, all the planning in the world couldn't save me. And I'm sure you've been there before too. But thanks to Magnesium Breakthrough, no matter what my day looks like, I know I can go into it being well-rested and feeling great. For me personally, taking Magnesium Breakthrough before I go to bed has helped me solve some of those sleep problems, including that winding down after a long day, as well as tossing and turning while I'm rehashing literally every second of the day. And while there are a lot of magnesium supplements out there, only one can give you all seven forms of magnesium that are designed to help calm your mind and help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up feeling refreshed, and that is Magnesium Breakthrough. For an exclusive offer for our listeners, go to buy buyoptimizers.com slash moms. Do it now. Your body and brain will thank you. Again, that's buyoptimizers.com slash moms and use promo code moms during checkout to save 10%. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the episode. So before the break, after years and years of speculation, Sheila has finally been arrested. And as Sheila's defense got to work going over all the evidence that the state had gathered against her, they realized that the state didn't have as strong of a case as they thought they did. They found that the state had really been misleading about the evidence. So to elaborate, we'll start with those orange-yellow acrylic fibers that the state said was found on the balloon ribbon. So when the defense started looking into it more closely, they noted that the hair fibers had never been discovered until the case was reopened in 2013. So the lead crime scene investigator in 1990 said that when he collected the balloons and ribbons, he visually examined them for any trace evidence like hairs and fibers. And he said there were none. He said if there had been, he would have photographed the hairs and packaged them separately. The crime lab employee who handled the evidence bag containing the balloons and ribbon in 1990 also said they didn't find any hairs or fibers. But the lab employee who handled the balloon ribbon evidence in 2013 said that when she opened up the package, she found a six to eight inch fiber. So she was the first person to have ever noticed this and she added it to the property receipt. Meanwhile, Sheila's defense also found out about an audit that had been conducted at the Palm Beach Evidence Unit back in 1999 after ongoing problems with the way that evidence was being handled. The results of this audit were damning. It was concluded that there were several issues with the evidence unit, including that the evidence bags were often not sealed properly. So a year after this audit, which was in 2000, the Palm Beach Post actually wrote an article about it and referenced multiple cases, including Marlene's. A blurb from this article reads, quote, nearly 10 years after a clown murdered Marlene Warren, county auditors have discovered some of the evidence was improperly stored. Open bags containing a white clown glove, seven types of clown makeup, an orange wig, and a bozo-type suit linked to the Wellington murder were found this fall inside the sheriff's evidence room. The bags should have been sealed to preserve evidence, end quote. 
It's possible, if not likely, that these items were the ones that officers purchased from the costume shop and not actual evidence they gathered in the case. But either way, it seemed like they were often careless with evidence. Even after the audit, the department still didn't investigate any of the evidence to see if it had been contaminated. Sheila's defense now wondered whether the hair and fiber evidence had also been contaminated during the audit. They wondered if it was possible that a fiber from the clown wig in the open bag somehow got into the bag with the balloons from the crime scene. Furthermore, the human hairs from the LeBaron were not a direct match to Sheila like the state had been alleging. The way the state had worded it, it made it sound like the hair they collected was an identical match to Sheila's hair. But that's not exactly what happened. What actually happened was that the FBI found that the hairs in the car were consistent with Sheila's hair, but that the comparison of microscopic characteristics is not enough for a basis of personal identification. So in other words, the hair could belong to someone other than Sheila. The defense learned that the FBI analyzed the hair shaft and root and concluded that the skin on the hair root said that it belonged to Sheila, but that also wasn't true. They actually found both male and female DNA on this root portion of the hair, and furthermore, the male DNA was what they said was the major contributor. So although Sheila couldn't be ruled out from being the source of the hair, they said the hair actually most likely came from a man. The final conclusion from the FBI was actually that the hair, quote, exhibits both similarities and differences to the head hair sample from Sheila Keene. The FBI had also done a partial mitochondrial DNA sequence from a hair found in the right rear of the car, but it was again determined that Sheila could not be ruled out as the source. However, they also found that 4% of Caucasians in the United States have the same mitochondrial DNA sequence. So even though Sheila can't be excluded, neither can one out of 25 every other random white women in this country. So basically they're saying it's completely useless um, information to have. Yeah. So after realizing all this, the defense ended up making a motion for bond, telling the court, quote, there is no reliable physical or testimonial evidence that implicates Sheila in this crime. On the contrary, the evidence indicates that Sheila did not shoot Marlene Warren. The state arrested Sheila based on assumptions and inferences drawn from purely circumstantial and inconclusive evidence. Yet the state has no direct evidence linking Sheila to the actual murder. The state averts that Sheila Keen Warren was having a romantic relationship with Michael Warren, so she must have been the person who killed Marlene Warren. The state has spent the last 30 years trying to force the evidence to match this loose motive, but the pieces don't fit the puzzle. Forcing the pieces into the wrong puzzle is futile and dangerous. This is precisely how you convict an innocent person, end quote. The defense continued by pointing out how little evidence there really was. After the shooting, three out of four witnesses said they thought the shooter was a man, and the fourth said they couldn't tell either way. All four witnesses said the shooter was over six feet tall as well, and Sheila is just five foot seven. They also pointed out that interviews police had with public's employees weren't quite as they seemed either. They didn't identify Sheila as being the person who bought the flowers and the balloons. Moreover, the costume shop employees that supposedly saw Sheila buying a clown costume told officers that it was a brightly colored costume yellow and orange on one side, and bright pink on the other. And this didn't match what any of the witnesses saw the clown shooter wearing. They all said the clown was wearing something different. 
Joe said it was a gray colored jumpsuit. Jenny said it was bright colors. Misty said it was multiple colors with blue dots on it. And Winston said the outfit was white with red hearts. They cannot be more different in there. Honestly, they really couldn't. Yeah. When you get to the red hearts, I'm like, what is happening here? Like nobody saw but the same thing. But it is wild and like goes back to the whole thing about like the way your brain works and puts together information that it 100%. thinks it remembers. But like, obviously he felt sure that he saw red hearts because that's very, very specific. But it's like, why did his brain see red hearts and no one else did? You know, it's just kind of one of those things where it's very fascinating to kind of be like, where did that even come from? And it's a traumatic thing. Like I was even telling you, this is back to my little hospital stay. There was something I told you and I said, actually, I don't know if I remember that or if somebody told me that because I just... There was just so much going on that I don't remember if that's a true memory I have. And so I can't imagine watching your mom be shot and then trying to remember, like, there's a freaking clown at your door. I just can't imagine putting right. all these details together. And that alone is so distracting. Like just oh my to even gosh. think like there it was a clown and then to have to be like, oh my gosh, now I have to remember like what type of clown, like, what it was wearing, like all that stuff. Like that's, it's just a lot to have to process and put together. Versus what your memory of a clown should look like or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's wild. So there was also the detail about Jenny saying she was positive the abandoned LeBaron found at Winn-Dixie was not the car the clown arrived in. And then, although really considering her poor recollection and description of the clown itself, that might not mean anything at all. Yeah. So the defense said that even if the two hair samples from the LeBaron did belong to Sheila and the vehicle was in fact involved in the murder, these findings still don't suggest when or how those hair samples ended up in the vehicle because Sheila could have still been inside that car any number of times in the days leading up to the shooting. This is We've kind of talked about this too, about whenever they find like DNA, but it's like in a, you know, they're looking for like, they're looking for a suspect, but then they find DNA, but it's like, it could all, it could have been there from a non-nefarious purpose. Right, right. I mean, we've talked about, I'm like, how do they tell, you know, and, and then I always get scared too. I'm like, what if they find my DNA somewhere, you know? And I'm like, and it's innocent, but then they're like, your DNA was here. And it's like, then I have to explain like, why yeah, was it there? And right. Like I'm, I go into that room a lot or whatever the thing is, you know, but um, yeah. So that's basically what they were saying is that even if it was her hair, there's no proving that it was put in there on the day of the shooting. Right. They're getting at. In the end, they said that the state had not met its burden, which was to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They said there was no credible physical evidence that Sheila was the very tall man that was dressed as a clown to kill Marlene Warren. Prosecutors quickly appealed the motion for bond and said that even though Joe and his friends all said that the clown was a tall man, the murder happened within seconds, which is not really long enough time for anyone to get a good look. The state said that on the morning of the murder, a woman matching Sheila's description bought identical flowers and balloons from a store less than a mile from Sheila's home and that the costume shop clerks confirmed seeing a woman matching her description buying a clown costume two days before the shooting. They also pointed out that Sheila had moved out of state and married the victim's husband while using a fake name. The one that she chose to use was Debbie. It's always fascinating to me as well when people get to choose a fake name and they just yeah. don't choose like a really cool, like different one. Like, why not go with I something? think Debbie's a great name. So how it's a dare great you? Name. How dare you? <laughs> it's a great name, but I feel like if you're trying to blend it, I mean, I guess that's a perfect Actually, way that's a pretty good yeah. one, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. They said that Sheila had told the court that she had no assets, but they ended up finding that she had thousands of dollars in multiple bank accounts. And they believed that due to all of this, Sheila was going to be a flight risk. 
Sheila was not granted bond, and the case continued towards trial with Sheila sitting in jail for years, maintaining her innocence the entire time, and her attorney was working very hard to question everything the prosecution had uh, against Sheila for their case. Finally, Sheila was scheduled to stand trial literally just a few weeks ago in May of 2023, but on April 25th, she took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. Sheila was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but she was awarded credit for this time that she had served, which was over five and a half years. Her attorney said that with time off for good behavior, she could be released within the next year. Marlene's son, Joe, agreed to Sheila's plea deal. He told 2020 that it was a shock that Sheila agreed to plead guilty, and he had really all but given up hope there would ever be a conviction. He said Sheila's plea blew his mind. The Palm Beach County State Attorney released a statement that said, quote, Sheila Keen Warren has finally been forced to admit that she was the one who dressed as a clown and took the life of an innocent victim. She will be a convicted murderer for the rest of her days, end quote. The attorney continued, quote, the decision to negotiate a guilty plea was made after considering the age of the 33-year-old case, particularly the death of key witnesses. For example, the death of the lead crime scene investigator broke the chain of custody for critical evidence that could no longer be authenticated, end quote. Sheila's attorney really considered the plea deal an incredible win for Sheila, pointing out that the state initially wanted to execute her, but now she will be getting released from prison soon. The attorney said that while it was difficult for Sheila to plead guilty to a crime she didn't commit, it was just a no-brainer when she had a guarantee that she could go home with her family. According to Sheila's attorney, she plans to go back to Michael in Virginia when she is released. Michael's allegedly very excited to have his wife back home and to know that there is some finality to all of this. Unfortunately, since Sheila never went to trial, there's really some details that we just don't know and probably never will. For example, what gun did the authorities think was used to kill Marlene? Did they think that it was Sheila's missing gun? Or did they think the murder weapon could have been the gun that was missing from Michael and Marlene's bedroom? Michael was never charged with anything related to his wife's murder, and he spoke with CBS at his home. When asked whether he had anything to do with Marlene's death, he said no. And they asked if he was the one who suggested that Sheila dress up like a clown. And he said, who says she even did that? I don't think she had anything to do with this. If I thought she had something to do with this, I wouldn't have been with her. Marlene's son, Joe, on the other hand, told CBS that he was sure Sheila had killed his mom. He said, quote, Sheila Keen Warren was the murderer of my mother. I was there. I saw her eyes. And I'll tell you, they're the eyes. I'll never forget them. End quote. Sheila is currently incarcerated in the Florida Women's Reception Center, and her release date is scheduled for October 12th, 2025. Wow. I wow, cannot wow. believe this story. <laughs> I don't even know what my thoughts are. Honestly, I really don't. I feel like it's one of those stories where it's like, if it wasn't Sheila, then who was it? They didn't really have any other suspects. Right. I mean, I can see how they say they don't really have any hard evidence to point towards her, but if not her, then who? The other thing, yeah. I feel like there's questions on both sides, though, because the other thing that I have a question of is they never found any of the clown costume, right? They never found any piece of it. They didn't find any parts of it in any dumpsters nearby. I'm sure they checked around to find yeah. out if someone had ditched a clown suit, you know. They never found any of that. So I'm like, I don't know. You know, I guess she just did a really good job afterwards if she was responsible and got rid of things that were really important that they never were able to find. But um, And then, of course, the question of the gun. We still don't know. They never found the murder weapon. So it's like right. definitely lots of questions. But then, like I said, 
Sheila had a motive, like she would have had the motive to do it. But then also, I don't know. I know there's a lot. I, I feel the same way. Like um, I understand. I think the attorneys, the best thing she could have done is to plead guilty and get the lesser sentence. But also, I think if it went to trial, there's a chance that she could have gotten off because yeah. I don't think it's beyond a reasonable doubt at all. No. Um, but I do think, like you said, there's a lot a lot that looks like it. And I, I tend to think that's what happened, but I would hate to have brought this to trial. I just, yeah. I don't, they, there's no way they would know what the jury would do. I, I just, yeah. So Sheila, it was probably the best thing for her, but I do think there's a chance she wouldn't have gotten any time. So yeah, this one kind of makes me think back to the story that we did recently, the murder of Dr. Thomas Coleman. And they had like so, so much, it was just all circumstantial evidence, right. but it was kind of another case where we were like, if it wasn't him, then who would it have been? You know, but then at the same time, we kind of said the same thing. They did, they didn't have enough to prove it was yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt. So, but this kind of uh, gave me the similar vibe to that story. Totally. Definitely a very, very crazy one. I am so happy that we were able to kind of cover this one again with a lot more detail and with the update. Yeah. So thank you very much, Haley, for all of thank that. Thank you, Haley. Yes. All right, Melissa, let's turn the page and move on to last thing before we go for the week. Okay, this has been a long episode, so this is going to be kind of a quick last thing before we go. So, Mandy, uh, school is out for most people this month. Our kids got out last month, uh, but school's out, so I can only do school-related things so many times a year for last <laughs> thing before we go. So I'm going to do movie-related school questions. Does that make Great. sense? Movies no. about school <laughs> and just asking you questions. So okay. they are multiple choice. And I found them on a site called Fact Monster. I did not make these questions up. Nice. Here we go. Mandy, who played Ferris Bueller's tattletale sister in the 1986 hit Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Was it Courtney Cox, Jennifer Grey, or Winona Ryder? <laughs> I don't know. Winona Ryder? Okay. Try one more time. <laughs> I have no idea. Jennifer Grey or Courtney Cox? Jennifer Grey. Good. Good job, Mandy. You Great. got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next one. Dead Poet Society is set at what exclusive prep school? Welton Avenue? Not Avenue. Welton Academy, Phillips Academy, or Manchester Prep? I do not know the answer to this. I'm going to say Manchester Prep because I truly have no idea. I've never seen this movie. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds good, but it was Welton Academy, so Aww. we were both wrong. Okay, in the 1989 film Heather's, which actress was not named Heather? Here's here's some redemption. Was it Winona Ryder, Shannon Doherty, or Kim Walker? Was not named Heather? Mm-hmm. In the movie The Heathers. Is this an easy one? That's what you said? Well, I said this is your redemption because oh. the answers were Winona Ryder, <laughs> Shannon Doherty, or Kim Walker. It has to be Winona Ryder. <laughs> Winona Ryder, good job. <laughs> In the film Dangerous Minds, which was based on a true story, Michelle Pfeiffer played Luann Johnson, a teacher who inspired students other teachers have given up on. What was Johnson's previous profession? And I will say for a bonus, what was the song from Dangerous Minds? So here are the choices. Was she a Marine before, a probation officer, or a karate instructor? She was... Oh my gosh, I haven't seen this movie in so long. Oh, I'm so excited you've seen it. I have. It's such a good movie. I want to watch it again really bad now, but I don't remember what she was. I'm going to say um, a probation officer. Close. She was a Marine. 
Okay. I guess the same thing when I took it earlier. So, yeah. um, but for I bonus think, you know points, what I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting movies confused in my brain, but I do like this movie and I want to watch it again now. Okay. Bonus points. What song came from Dangerous Minds or who sang it? I'll give you either one. And he died this oh, year, RIP, or maybe last year, recently. I have no idea. Coolio. Oh, he died? He died. Yeah. He died earlier, earlier this year, early last year. I did not know that. Yeah, sorry, RIP. All right, last one. Okay, Mandy, I didn't know this either. The film Clueless was loosely based on what literature classic? Was it Emma, Catcher in the Rye, or Jane Eyre? Definitely not Catcher in the Rye. No, you. good job. Good job. <laughs> That's also a book that I love that I read. I knew it doesn't sound <gasps> I've never read like it. Clueless. Has to be, what'd you say, Jane Eyre? Or Emma. What did you say? I don't, I've never heard of Emma. So which one are you guessing? But that's probably what it's, um, I mean, maybe, let's just guess Emma since I have never heard of it. Good job. You got it. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do this one. Last question. Who directed the definitive film of the 1970s high school experience, Dazed and Confused? Was it Kevin Smith, Richard Linklater, or Steven Soderbergh? I am not well versed on my directors, Melissa. How dare you? <laughs> I know. Well, I didn't pick the question. Well, I did pick the question, but I, I don't know anything really. about movie directors. Why don't you just tell us? Did you say Richard Linklater? Okay. Good job, Mandy. You got it right. <laughs> awesome. I thought it was Kevin Smith, but that didn't even make sense. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's all I've got. There weren't great, oh, but that's you great. Did great. No, I thought it was great. I think it's great because then I try to learn things, although I will absolutely 100% forget them as soon as I get off this conversation with you if nothing else just remember winona Ryder was not the heather and the heathers there you That's go i know yeah well now i mean i will say what i got out of this last thing before we go is that i want to go watch some movie there's a few movies i want to go watch now so there you go i mean look what we've done look what we've done. <laughs> look what we've done <laughs> before we get going we are going to be playing a uh, promo for murder she told she tells stories of maine and new england true crime unsolved mysteries and she's a big advocate for victims and their families so we'd love it if you checked her out awesome all right guys that is it for this week we'll be back next week same time same place new story have a great week bye Murder, She Told is an award-winning true crime podcast that dives into the lesser-known cold cases and true crime stories from the New England region and beyond, created by me, Kristen Seavey. Murder, She Told uses detailed storytelling with an investigative twist, weaving in original interviews with those closest to the case, rooted in deep research, straightforward narratives, and the victims at the center of every story. Murder, She Told will speak to any listener, no matter where they call home. Learn more at MurderSheTold.com and find Murder, She Told now wherever you get podcasts.